Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode number 22 for the Jackson Hole Connection, a podcast featuring worldly interesting people with wildly fascinating stories to share who have a connection to Jackson Hole. My vision for this podcast is to visit with folks who wish to share how actions in their daily lives are making positive impacts in their community. My guest today is Jose Rivas, an inspiring new community member. Jose is a counselor at Munger Mountain Elementary School, which is Teton County's new Spanish-English dual immersion campus. Jose has a moving story I'm excited to share with you today. We will learn from Jose about learning to be open, how he constantly works to overcome obstacles, and what it means to Jose to be a risk taker, because life is a risk. Most recently, Jose returned from Washington, D.C. to lobby on behalf of himself and other DACA recipients. But before we begin, I have a quick word from one of our sponsors. Jackson Hole Marketplace, the small market in Jackson Hole with a huge reach. Stop in for hot coffee and homemade breakfast in the morning, awesome lunches in the afternoon, and finish the day with a soft serve ice cream and a six pack of beer. Need catering for breakfast or lunch? They can do it and deliver for free. Wanna know more? Visit jhmarketplace.com. Jose, so delighted to have you here for the Jackson Hole Connection today. Welcome and I really appreciate you coming. Thank you, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. So we were talking a little bit before about uh, some of your history, and just to give a little bit of background, you and I met in the locker room at the gym. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and just started talking, and after some thinking and realizing the phenomenal story that you have and the struggles that you've had in your life, I felt that it's something that was really important to share with everyone here on the Jackson Hole Connection. So I'm excited and really impressed with your openness. So um, look forward to sharing what you have to say today. Yeah, thank you. Um, Being open is something that I've struggled with, but something that I've come to consider, you know, part of my journey. So others understand the situations that people in my shoes go through on a daily basis. Tell us, what is your daily struggle? To begin explaining my daily struggle or those daily obstacles I have to overcome. We have to go back to um, the mid-90s when uh, I immigrated to the United States. I know that right now in our nation, this is a big debate. I was six, six, seven years old when when I first came here. Um, I traveled with a family member and arrived in California. I did not see my family for a couple of years. Um, We would be reconnected a few years later. And we, we lived in California. Uh, parents worked in the migrant fields, uh, picking uh, grapes and almonds, that type of farm work that migrant labor workers do. In 99, our, our family caught a break and heard about the labor need for um, energy industry here in the state of Wyoming. And so my family and I packed up and came to the state of Wyoming. And that's where my 20-year love affair with the state began. Uh, my dad always worked in the pipeline and oil industry. Uh, com- coming to Wyoming uh, brought a lot of new details to my life that I didn't understand as a child. Uh, in seventh grade, there's a lot of immigration raids by uh, then INS, which is now ICE. And I began to realize what being undocumented meant. I was brought into the United States as an undocumented child. And I began to realize this because 
I could not play sports because I didn't have a social security to obtain medical insurance. And I could not travel with high school opportunities I had or, or junior high opportunities to travel um, by plane. And that's because I had a fear. And it wasn't a fear of the plane falling or crashing. It was a fear of simply not uh, having the documentation to travel and being apprehended by individuals. And I began to realize and understand what being undocumented meant. And I, I've, when I say have to be open, is because I've constantly had to overcome obstacle and obstacle just to be where I am today. In 2014, I had an opportunity to come out as an undocumented student at the University of Wyoming. And that was when we started creating a, a honest conversation and having open dialogue of, of the folks who live in Wyoming and those folks who are living within the fabric of this of this state. Wow. I did not know any of that. <laughs> yeah. we've, we've only known each other for a short period of time, but that's so much more than what I had even learned from you originally. And I cannot imagine the struggles that you lived with every day, not just you, but your family. From what you said, you came over here without your parents. Yes. So your parents were still back in Mexico or were they here in the U.S. already? They were back in Mexico. They were back in Mexico. When they arrived to the United States, I learned that I had a new sibling. <laughs> Phenomenal. Yes. It's a, it's a, you know, a, a story that's similar to thousands of other DACA recipients. You know, being separated from families, reunited, reunited and then separated again for whatever reasons, whether it's deportation, you know, family chooses to leave, and then just the migration chain. Well, I'm glad that your family was reconnected over some time, and you are um, a sign of winning of any struggle because you have a college degree, you are working professional, and you're giving back to this community and to other communities. But at the same time, um, there's something that kind of is overarching in your life. And that's the fact of you being a DACA recipient. You're not a um, legalized citizen. And so what happens with the future is always lingering in the back of your mind. But talking to you, I don't hear bitterness. I don't see bitterness that you're moving forward and looking for ways to impact other people's lives in a very positive way. Yes. You know, Immigrants and those of the, what I, we call in academia, the 1.5 generation, children of immigrant uh, parents, uh, we, we learn to be resilient. And that's something that a lot of us students who, who do obtain a higher education uh, re rely upon us, um, rely upon on, because, uh, you know, we're in a system that constantly tells us, uh, you, you don't belong here, this is not your place. And we have to break those barriers down and be resilient, whether it's working three or four jobs because you don't obtain the FAFSA uh, scholarships or Pell Grants or because you don't receive the state funding um, scholarship the Hathaway that every high school recipient in the state of Wyoming receives, uh, depending on merit-based um, GPA and ACT scores. So we're constantly being told, you know, not, not physically or not in a direct way, but... 
uh, we're we're in a system that that's not meant for uh, especially those first generation students. So we're very resilient, and I think that's the the push. We we saw the sacrifice that our parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins have made for us to have this opportunity. And if we can give those back as a professional to our future students, students who are currently in elementary, middle school, or high school students, uh, then that's that's what we were here for. That's what we were meant to be, to provide that avenue to higher education and bridging that academic gap. And um, yes, fortunately, I do have a, a master's degree in counseling, a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Um, but that, that was an 11-year journey for the same reason that I did not have to correct that commentation um, to be able to obtain that higher education. There is a lot of struggles in between, between working in the pipeline and the oil fields in the summers to be able to pay for tuition, for um, to look into for private donors uh, to support my academic journey and um, merit-based scholarships, you know, creating a voice so that we had access to the same merit-based scholarships. And that's one thing, you know, that not to get into politics, but folks always say that DACA recipients are draining the system. Um, and, you know, what I always told the media and told people who always question that is that, you know, we're not asking for handouts. We're merely asking to have access to those same merit-based opportunities. Give us the same exams, give us the same GPA requirements, ACT scores, but give us those same opportunities. I'm, I'm glad that you are finding your voice in this process. And recently, you were telling me how you have returned from Washington, D.C. Yes. And tell us a little bit about what you why you went to Washington, D.C., and what did you do there? Yeah, so DACA has um, a little, I want to say little, it's huge benefit um, to travel abroad with advanced parole. Advanced parole is a temporary parole to be um, able to travel outside of the U.S. for educational, humanitarian, and business purposes. In 2015, I took advantage of it for the first time with the University of Wyoming. I traveled to Trinidad and Tobago on a um, world service trip. And it was an alternative spring break. We we helped beautify the, the fishing community that we visited. It was amazing. I never knew I had an opportunity to travel, specifically because of my status. And it was life-changing. I was one of the first in the state of Wyoming to do so. And I started encouraging you know, I was, I've always been a risk taker, <laughs> trailblazer type person. If I can do it, then people will follow. And, and that's that's my motto, <laughs> be a risk taker. Um, Life's a risk, one of my favorite uh, movie quotes. And um, I, I have to say that in 2017, one of my former professors, Dr. Vanessa Fonseca, continued to support me. A lot of professors do and still do to this day. And they sent me an email like, hey, there's a, a study abroad opportunity to Mexico, to Mexico, <laughs> my home country, my my place of, of origin where I was born. Um, I hadn't been back to Mexico in over 21 years. Um, was I crazy to say yes? Uh, maybe. Were we told not to go because President Trump was elected? Yes. Would anybody give an opportunity to travel to connect with those historical oral stories that your family told at the dinner and campfires? No, you're not going to pass up that opportunity. So I applied. Um, I forget the numbers, but it was over 16 states, over 100 applicants, and 
60-something colleges. They selected 34 students across from California to New York. And out of those 34, they selected 15 students to participate in a, a graduate-level immigration course taught by Dr. Jorge Bustamante from Notre Dame uh, at Colegio de la Frontera Norte in Tijuana. And we were selected. We were granted our, our parole. Um, the media went crazy. You, why are you guys going? You're going to get stuck at the border. Um, but, you know, it's a privilege that comes with DACA. And like any privileges, if we have them, uh, why not take uh, advantage of it, right? And I was able to reconnect with my family for the first time in over 21 years. Uh, did ethnographic research, asked those questions. Why did the family leave? Why, what, what was those push-pull factors that, that brought us to the United States? And we were reconnected. Um, you know, it was it was a beautiful journey. Not just historically, you know, the the history of Mexico, but you know, the foods, the the family gatherings. You know, butchering a pig so uh, we can have a homecoming for myself and butchering sheep. I mean, it's very very beautiful experience. And then, of course, the educational background to it was just phenomenal. And I was I was able to, to travel to Mexico and come back on their Advanced Pro in 2017. It's funny, we, we came into the United States August 21st. Of course, the media was involved. And on September 5th, President Trump um, rescinded DACA. So it was a very uncertain, uncertain, uncertain is the, the word for the, the situation we're in as DACA recipients. So uh, we went to D.C. And a, co a couple weeks ago to advocate to restore advanced parole. Advanced parole is um, not a legislative matter. It's more of a administrative uh, matter. So when advanced parole came back after it was blocked by the judges, um, not advanced parole, when DACA came back, it was blocked and blocked by the judges. Advanced parole was not a benefit that came with it anymore. Um, travel documents were not allowed to uh, be approved for DACA recipients, and so we were we were meeting in D.C. to campaign to restore advanced parole because our students across our nation are going to benefit from this, whether they're seniors in high school who have DACA or whether they're um, undergrads at a university looking to do a st study abroad or even graduate students. I was a graduate student when I was able to travel, but more to the educational piece, there's a humanitarian reason to travel. When your grandparents pass away or when your dad or mom pass away and they're in, the, in Mexico, you can't just go because you'd be self-deporting. But if you had this advanced parole, then you can go pay those last respects to your family members who, who passed away. And that, that was one of the main, aside from the educational piece, you know, we, we constantly have loved ones who are dying and we can't go because that the registration legislation or policy is not there. So we had a wonderful time, met with a lot of congressmen and women. Um, we got tours of the Capitol. Of course, it was during the shutdown, so we had limited access to things. But it was amazing, just the experience, the networking, the professional development that was created there uh, was just mind-blowing. Talking about you going back to Mexico and, and you being selected one of 15 out of all of those students who applied. What a beautiful story for you to reconnect with your family and your heritage and your roots that you could be a part of that and 
then learned from your family? Like you said, what was the push-pull factors for families to to leave their heritage? Yeah, um, for for us and my family in particular was uh, the financial strain. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we we have these transnational communities that we create when, uh, let's say, Jackson here and San Simeon Tlaxcala. The communities depend off each other. You you uh, independent independent from both Jackson and San Simeon. You know that's just one example. In my in my country, my country, my pueblo, uh, which is my my town, uh, was the same same thing. We we already had family here who moved here in the '80s as migrant workers who worked in the grape fields and the peach fields, and uh, we we were blessed or privileged to have a family here that that would bring us. But really, in, in my situation, it was, you know, leaving, um, I wouldn't say, I mean, extreme poverty, but I, would, I wouldn't I would say we were well off or even um, okay. Uh, there was days where and, um, my family didn't have uh, the means, you know, to obtain the necessary needs that we needed. Um, you know, my grandma tells me a story of when uh, I would just shake my foot at her telling her to buy me shoes because I didn't have shoes. I had really old shoes. And so just connecting to those stories, seeing why we moved, um, you know, the financial strain, um, not being able to attain the necessary needs that we needed. And we knew that if we came to the United States, that we'd even have the basic necessities to survive. But more than that, we'd have an opportunity or a shot at that sueño americano, right? The American dream. And uh, we didn't know it at the time. But, you know, I, I would go through this educational journey and, and be a successful student. So the pains that, you, that your family was going through were so strong or the pains were so apparent that your family was willing to take the risk to come to this country and follow the American dream, knowing what the inherited risks were or are, because it was just so bad in Mexico that you wanted to make life better for your family and for your future. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think a lot of people don't realize what that pain can really be and what it looks like, what it feels like. It probably wears different masks um but when it's that real and that true there is a reason that you're going to take risks and make things better for yourselves yes definitely and i I probably didn't understand the severity of it as a six seven year old but as i i grew older and i started listening to these stories and i just started obtaining an education and having to be a labor worker to be able to pay for school, you start understanding and appreciating why it is that your parents made that decision to bring you to the United States. So let's talk a little bit about you being a labor worker to pay for school. And you're referring, are you referring to college, to university level school, and then for your master's? Yes. Yes. So tell people a little bit in detail, what does that mean being a labor worker to go pay for school? Yes, definitely. Um, we'd have to go back to high school. I started working at the age of 14. 
as a you know uh, landscaping uh, guy I was 14 my cousins and I were looking for work and we found this wonderful guy who I learned a lot from uh, his name was Al he just taught us the basic skills we needed to hold the job and to have that grit to continue working despite the obstacles he was an amazing guy uh, a few years passed I'm a senior in high school and everybody starts to apply for scholarships. I received one $500 scholarship, I remember that, that later I could not even use because I didn't have a social security. But um, regardless, I had not applied to college because I was afraid that Wyoming colleges would turn me down because of my status. Um, so graduation came and a friend and I who unfortunately, excuse me, passed away a couple of years ago, a couple summers ago, um, we decided that we were going to continue working in the energy industry and uh, we didn't have any hopes of acquiring a higher education because we knew that the odds were against us we're talking 2007 I graduated in 2007 and um, the movement was starting uh, we had no idea of it we were in isolated wyoming i mean the southwest was starting to gain momentum with dreamers wanting to obtain a high school degree and fortunately, my, my, my friend told me that he had been accepted to Casper College and there's a way to get in. And he explained the, the way and uh, we started our college career in Casper. Uh, we had uh, saved enough money that summer. Uh, we did a senior trip to California because we could not travel to Mexico like the rest of our peers. But we, we went to San Francisco, came back and started college. We didn't have a dorm. We had no idea what college was. We packed a van. It was a town and country van, a 98 van, I remember. We packed all our belongings and headed to Casper. Found housing for a month until they told us we could move into the dorms. It was my birthday. Move-in day was my birthday, a month later after school started. And that's where a college career started. But quickly I realized, you know, wow, my parents can only help me so much. I can only help myself so much. Um, we... we, we Realize that a good way to pay for college would be to continue working, you know, as a, a labor worker. And I, I already had the work experience. I had that motivation uh, physically to, to do whatever I needed to do. So we finished our first year of, of college and then we moved back to Gillette College. But in the summers, I started pouring concrete. I knew that if I wanted to obtain um, my degree and have to pay for it, I would have to work for it. And that meant um, giving up those opportunities that other students have. Not saying that all students have it easy, but definitely, you know, traveling in the summer, going to camping trips, doing all these things. You, you kind of give those up a little bit because you have to work 40 to, say, 70 hours a week. And um, I graduated in 2010 with an associate's in general studies. I was a nursing major, but because I didn't have the status, I could not do practicums. So I just did general studies and started working in construction. Then I said, well, I'll, I'll go back to work as a roustabout uh, rig hand, do whatever I need to do. Hopefully something will pass. Uh, I, I did a semester in California, didn't work out, came back. Then um, I obtained a associates in criminal justice in 2013, three years later. Again, with hopes that by the time I graduated, I would have a green card or citizenship and I could work as a law enforcement officer. That didn't work out. I went back to work in the oil industry 
where I had a really bad accident. Uh, we were building battery houses and I had um, a sheet metal fall from a forklift and cut my leg. I was bedridden for months, took you know, five months of therapy to be able to walk again. And when, when we say, you know, DACA recipients literally have to work, you know, their own sweat, blood and tears, it's to me, it's literal, just that experience. Um, as I was recovering from the accident in 2012, in the summer, uh, President Obama announced DACA, uh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, would, would um, be a life-changing moment for a lot of us. It was then that I realized I was in tears, regardless of politics or whatnot. I knew that that was my opportunity to obtain, you know, my degree and go forward with life and give back to our communities. And between the summers, I, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to pay for a bachelor's degree at the University of Wyoming. I looked at the numbers. Yes, it's cheap. But for a first generation student, that seemed like a lot of money. And so uh, my dad at the time was still pipelining, and I asked him if he could get me in. Pipeline world, you know, as a labor worker, it's who you know. And um, I, I earned my spot in the pipeline industry as a labor worker, and I, I still had fears of, of you know, getting hurt, the accident that I had at the oil field. And I just moved forward and worked every summer in my undergrad. Um, pipelining, the energy industry has a lot of money, of course, and even as a labor worker, you know, because you're putting yourself at risk and you're traveling all across the Midwest from North Dakota to Louisiana, it paid well. I would save up and I would have enough money. I bought a little modular home in, in Laramie and that would be my, my fort for the next four years. My, my sisters who are in college still use it actually. But I realized, you know, I, I could save money and then by the time March came around in, in school, I would I would start running out of money and I would go work at the cafeteria. You know, I, I could go from making 1500 to 2500 a week to making $80, $90 working at Washakie as a server, you know, the, the student cafeteria. And, and you know, whatever work I got, I would do just because I knew that my family and I could always use that money. And um, in college, I, I was fortunate enough to apply for a graduate assistantship as a graduate student. And I I realized then that I didn't I never had never knock on wood never had to return to the labor work um, not because it's physically demanding and nobody wants to do it but you know after acquiring all the skills I I think that I can move forward and I realized then that I would have to I had become a professional and I had to acquire my my financial needs professionally and I had that graduate assistantship that helped tremendously, you know, but even in college, uh, all four of my siblings and I, with the nine year difference, were uh, at, in college at the same time, which, you know, kept my mom, it's a separate story, but my mom was diagnosed with cancer and having all four of us attending college at the same time while she was away kind of gave her that motivation. And four people, four students in college, three who were undocumented or DACA recipients, you know, paying tuition, paying for a room and board and uh, bills. We sold tamales and salsas once a month. Really? You know? Yes. I mean, our mother taught us to work and that's mm -hmm. that's what we did. We knew how to make tamales because she used to sell them. Mm -hmm. You know, when we came to, to Wyoming and as little kids, we always helped her and we obtained, you know, the recipes in her mind and we can 
we we knew how to make tamales so we'd make you know 20 to 30 dozen tamales once a month so we can help ease those tuition 20 costs 20 to 30 thousand no dozen dozen, dozen. okay dozen. all right thank you dozen. for clarity 20 <laughs> no, no. to 30 dozen i think okay. we'd be a full-time restaurant yeah. owners <laughs> no but yeah once a month all four of my siblings and i from the freshman to the grad student we'd get together and make tamales for professors who ordered them friends um you know but when there's and spanish is querer es poder and english it uh, loosely translates you know when there's there's a will, there's a way. Mm-hmm. And if we have to pay for school even by making tamales and, mm-hmm. and selling them, we were going to do it, you know, and we did. Do your sisters still, because they're still in the, the University of Wyoming down in Laramie, yes. are they still? One one finished um, in May of 2017, a year after I started grad school, mm-hmm. and one just finished her school here last December 2018. Okay. Um, she'll come back and walk in May and the youngest one, she's she's a junior right now. She's still there. But yes, they, they still make tamales to be able to, to pay for, you know, even as a professional, uh, both my parents are sick. My dad had open heart surgery last week, two weeks ago. My mom's fighting cancer. You know, being undocumented students, being undocumented professionals still kind of takes a toll on, you know, um, the medical aspects of it, tuition. Um, so I, I I would say that I'm one, um, you know, or not the sole provider, but I, I help my family a lot, mm-hmm. even with the professional job and being undocumented. You still struggle just because of all the other means, you know, whether it's tuition, whether it's having to pay two or three different, um, not mortgages, but rents, I would mm-hmm. say. You know, here in Jackson, I'm paying 1200 for 400, 500 square foot studio. <laughs> I mean, wow. But that's Jackson, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, uh, we we whatever money comes in as a family, um, it gets pulled together. It gets pulled together mm-hmm. for that very reason that we we have those extra struggles. You are now here in Jackson Hole. You are a counselor at the New Munger Mountain Dual Immersion Elementary School, and when you're not at work at Munger Mountain, you're also doing counseling on the side. Yes. So you can provide for your family, as you had said, that your whole family pools resources, finances, so you can help provide for each other. So going forward, what do you see your impact being not just for your family, but other DACA recipients? You know, as DACA recipients, there's a lot of uncertainty. That's that's a term I would say. You you don't know what's gonna happen. At you know the the government again, not to get into politics, but they they practically are using us as bargain chips, whether it's for the wall, whether it's for tax reform, whatever it is. There's always the DACA recipients, the dreamers. What what are we gonna do with them? How could we use them to to move our policies forward, what what do we do? There's there's just a lot of uncertainty. For for me, it was do I, I do I obtain this job here at Teton County School District? Uh, my DACA was due to expire in 2019, January 2019, so last month. Um, if, if DACA wasn't um, brought back or blocked by the federal judges, then I would be out of a job. I would not be able to provide those services um, to our students or to our community members here in Jackson. 
and that's that's the truth about it that DACA recipients are on on the fence with no path to citizenship there's that belief that DACA recipients or that DACA holds that path to citizenship and it doesn't um that's a that's a myth there's no no way no policy that um tells us as DACA recipients you're going to first hold an LPR legal permanent resident otherwise known as a green card and then three five years later then you can become a citizen that does not exist that's the one of the biz, m- big myths that um the american people have um it's just merely a work permit for two years and a protection from deportation for two years and you can renew it two times or renew it every two years i've done it three times now i've had it since 2012 2013 so um that's you know there we're in a limbo what are we going to do if daca does does um, go away. The government at this point has all of our information. They have our addresses. They have, you know, our family information. What do we do with 800,000 recipients who have obtained DACA? You know, so it's it's just constantly uncertainty, anxiety-producing type uncertainty. And I, I want to put 800,000 um, recipients into context here. That's more people than the than the population of the state of Wyoming. Yes, and we are the least populated state. So, just to give it in perspective, if all eight hundred thousand recipients were forced to go back to their home country, their naturalized countries, then the state of Wyoming would have nobody living here. Yes, just to put it in correlation. So you have been challenged with so much throughout your life, but you keep going, and you have such a fantastic disposition and perspective on life what keeps you going you know i have to say it goes back to the my family you know my parents sacrificed everything their two-room house and by two rooms i mean a kitchen and one room that we lived in sacrificed everything to come to the united states to give us a better life whether it was through employment through education regardless of whatever we we're going to do as future Americans, because I am not a citizen, but I am an American. I, I consider myself American. You know, the sacrifice they made to to provide us that opportunity, um, you know, and also the, the opportunities that this country has given us. You know, we're woven in the fabric of this country, and it's given us a lot. So to have the opportunity to give back to our local state and national communities also drives me to move forward to to show the world that we're we're creating those opportunities for for our future you know students our future community members just to give back to the community and make that positive change that's what drives me to continue the work that i'm doing i love it i'm thrilled that you are as outspoken as you are i certainly admire that and keep fighting the good fight for yourself and for your family and all of the other DACA recipients. Um, yes, this is not about politics. This is about people. And exactly. that's, that's why I have this podcast is to share stories because people have stories. Yes. And folks, you know, always get surprised when we talk about immigration in Wyoming. And and if we're honest, we have the honest conversation. We are in the state. We look at Jackson, the the labor force, 
the energy industry up in Chillat, the energy capital of the nation. When, when we look at our students at the University of Wyoming, people assume that DACA recipients are just Latino, but that is very wrong. We have Asian students who have DACA. We have European students who have DACA. The, the reality is that immigration comes in many forms and many different types of countries. So, well, when you're talking about people, it's always going to come in many forms. Yes. So if people want to reach out to you, how can people connect with you, Jose? Uh, yeah, my uh, email, I think, would be best. It's Jose G. Rivas, R-I-V-A-S, the number one at Outlook.com. You being here today has inspired me to do so much more with the resources that I have for my family. And I appreciate what you're doing, and I can't tell you enough for you being here today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Is it okay to pair beer with Beef Wellington? Does Merlot go with Red Bull? Not sure how to make the perfect bourbon and Coke? Well, the team at the liquor store of Jackson Hole can answer all of these questions plus more. Stop in at 115 Buffalo Way, Jackson, Wyoming, or visit us at tlsofjh.com to experience service that will knock your socks off. The liquor store has been serving the Jackson Hole Valley for over 35 years. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today to the Jackson Hole Connection. I hope you have enjoyed listening and can take away a little nugget about life. I'm always looking for fun guests who have a connection to Jackson Hole. Know of someone who would be great to be on the show? Please send me an email to connect at thejacksonholeconnection.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review The Jackson Hole Connection on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. A special shout-out to my friend Luke Taylor for producing and providing the tunes for this podcast. Luke, you help bring it all together. Y'all come back again. You hear?